Today on Government Matters, a new assignment for the Army on top of its coronavirus response. Lieutenant General Laura Richardson on prepping for hurricane season in the middle of a pandemic. The finish line in sight for this year's defense policy legislation. Two veteran defense and industry leaders tell you what the final result might be. And what could derail that bill before it gets to the finish line? Our Federal Beat Roundtable takes an up-close look. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. U.S. Army North continues work with the Federal Emergency Management Agency on the coronavirus response. It oversees operations in Texas and California now. Lieutenant General Laura Richardson is commander of U.S. Army North, uh, 5th Army. Ma'am, thanks for coming back on the program. We talked uh, back in April about the coronavirus uh, response. You said this was the first time that you had ever worked with all 10 FEMA regions at the same time. What are you learning out of that exercise? What are the biggest challenges that you and your command faced? So uh, quite honestly, it's just having all of the right people in the right place. And the, when you think of a whole of nation response, and it is the entire nation, uh, it's just bigger than what we're normally, uh, normally encountering with a hurricane. Uh, we might be dealing with four, five, six states, uh, something like that. But this was a great opportunity. We have exercised for this. And so quite honestly, when it actually did uh, blossom up to be the entire nation, we were ready to respond. And so uh, the, and we always wanna exercise harder than uh, what we actually encounter. So we were ready to just jump right in and, and get all of our people out in all the necessary places. We already have people embedded with, uh, with all 10 FEMA regions, our defense coordinating officers. And it was just a matter of plussing them up, adding uh, additional command and control capability uh, across the country and um, and we were ready to jump into action. You mentioned hurricane season that's beginning here and uh, I, I wonder what that preparation looks like how you kind of war game for a response to something in the middle of something else as we're doing right now. Yes absolutely and we have been preparing for this for months and so we just had a rehearsal of concept what we call a rock drill in the military uh, but we had all of our interagency partners, uh, the lead federal agency normally, which is FEMA, uh, HHS was involved. We had uh, the local state and officials, uh, local and state officials that participated uh, from region six, region four, region two. Uh, and so um, all getting ready, prepared uh, to respond. And so we're watching these three storms very, very closely. Uh, uh, as they come forward and, and uh, bring a lot of rain, it looks like uh, for the most part, but uh, we're continuing to watch very closely. How does your response ebb and flow based on things like weather threats, uh, the increases or decreases in coronavirus spreads and all those kinds of things? How do you determine the reallocation of resources and moving people and, and stuff around where you need them to be? So you, you never want to be late to need, uh, and so it's a balance, as, as you're as you're um, as you're indicating. And so it, it's making sure that we watch that storm very closely. We watch the the uh, capabilities that we have, that they're positioned to where they, they can respond quickly, uh, that they're not too far away. And so we we gauge that and move things forward as we need to. 
uh, to make sure that, again, we're not late to need, but then we're, we're not chasing the storm either. You're basically commanding a force of first responders. How are you keeping them where you need them to be, keeping them ready mentally and physically throughout all of these various operations, ma'am? So that's really, really important because uh, some of our medical providers didn't participate in March, April, or May. And so, uh, first of all, we bring them into, uh, into the San Antonio area for Texas, for example, with our response here. And then obviously at uh, Travis Air Force Base in uh, California for the response that we're doing there in California. I talk to them and I tell them uh, personally with all these groups that are coming in what, you're, what they're going to face when they get on the ground and the expectation as soon as you arrive there. Uh, which is generally that afternoon or the next morning that they're going to jump into action and and uh, help that hospital staff they're integrated in the hospitals they're going to be those wraparound capabilities that they need to jump in and help those staffs that are exhausted mentally exhausted and uh, and be able to give them a boost of energy and uh, that they can overcome this and they they have enough uh, capability and capacity in order to overcome it how do you pace that that force how do you when you don't know how long we're going to be responding for example to coronavirus how do you pace those folks so that you don't burn them out too fast that's right so you got to watch them very closely got to talk to them uh, we have capability that we uh, we talk to them every day their leadership is talking to them every day uh, and that the uh, we also have a uh, behavioral health and combat stress our religious support teams, our chaplains are just amazing counselors. And so we have teams that have, uh, that we have already put out and, uh, and we're bringing in more teams to go out and make sure that our personnel talk to them, uh, check on the conditions, make sure they're doing well, uh, and provide best practices also to our civilian counterparts in those hospitals. Ma'am, you mentioned a few moments ago that three, four months ago, you were prepping for what was going to face you with hurricane season. What are you exercising for now in anticipation of maybe September, October, November, given that we're still likely to be in a coronavirus response phase at that point? Well, we want to have PPE ready to go. PPE is very important. Um, capabilities like high water vehicles always come in uh, very handy, for example, in Harvey and uh, Hurricanes Florence and Michael. You need those high water capability, vehicle capabilities. Generally need uh, engineer route opening. You know, if you've got a bunch of trees that have fallen down on on I-95 or something like that, a main uh, a main highway in order to get more emergency response capability through, you've got to clear that very quickly. Uh, and then you got to be able to have logistics and be able to have that node that is uh, just expands and you're able to bring in logistics very quickly, medical support, whatever is needed. And so in some cases uh, with a category four or five hurricane, we may go in with a small capability uh, and ride out the storm until that's over. So we're already on the ground ready to establish uh, that uh, command and control node and bring in more capability quickly. General, we have 30 seconds left. What's the biggest thing that's changed between the time, last time you were here in April and today? I would say that the uh, just the age group uh, of uh, what the what, what this coronavirus enemy is uh, is is attacking now, and so I would just say to everybody, I we know the PPE works. Um, at my headquarters, we didn't have uh, we didn't have the uh, the ability to telework because we in the business that we're in, we've got to be we got to be at work every day. So we've been met wearing masks. Uh, regard, you know, we've been social distancing, but also wearing masks, and so. 
I, you know, just those things that they tell us to do, if we do that, wearing the mask, wash your hands, uh, social distance, um, all of those things have kept us well. And so I just can't say enough about it. And, and everybody, if everybody does their small part, uh, that can be a really big difference. The age group that this virus uh, seems to be attacking now has moved not from the higher end, but it's moving now down into the 50s. And in some cases, some uh, some in their 30s are, are contracting the virus now too. So just want to make sure everybody is uh, remains safe and healthy and takes all the precautions. General Richardson, thanks very much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Francis. Up next, the finish line insight for this year's national defense policy legislation. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what you should follow as this year's NDAA heads to a final vote. You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. The House and Senate both passed their versions of the National Defense Authorization Act this week. The Senate's version passed Thursday, 86 to 14. The House passed its version Tuesday, 295 to 125. Wes Hallman is Senior Vice President of Strategy and Policy, the National Defense Industrial Association. Alan Schwatkins, Executive Vice President and Counsel at the Professional Services Council. Gentlemen, gentlemen welcome. Thanks for coming on. Wes, I'll start with you. Does the vote mean anything that uh, both houses seem to very easily pass their NDAA versions? Is that a good sign, do you think? I think that's a great sign. First off, we're, we're very happy that they both, uh, both chambers got this done before the August recess. I think that bodes well with our getting the uh, 60th uh, uh, in a row uh, defense authorization. You know that law sets the policies that, uh, that govern how we do national security. For the following year. So I think it bodes well that on both sides of the aisle and across caucuses that uh, national defense uh, remains a priority uh, even despite or, or because of uh, the challenges we've had due to COVID and other things that have been uh, uh, going on this, this year. Alan, what do you see in either version or both versions of these bills that's significant to you either for the good or the bad? Well, there's a lot of very good in, in both of these bills. I think uh, from the House side, there's a clear signal that they intend to continue to support the readiness of the forces uh, and the role of contractors uh, in the support of the Department of Defense. On the Senate side, again, uh, support for uh, the mission, uh, continued support for uh, spending for COVID and the recovery for the department uh, from that spending. And then they've added the, uh, def the Intelligence Authorization Act for fiscal year 21 as an amendment to the Senate version of the NDAA. Uh, again, the common path over the last few years, but very important to see a number of reforms in the intel community being tacked on uh, as a vehicle for enactment. Wes, your comment a moment ago I thought was interesting that this was happening either in spite of or because of the COVID situation. What's your sense of the impact that COVID's had on this process and what the end result might be when the conference committee's done, the houses, uh, the chambers vote, president signs it, and the military actually starts to see the results of these authorizations? No, I think what, what we've seen from the COVID crisis is uh, that uh, despite this crisis, despite uh, what's happening uh, locally or, or domestically, that this 
too, is an international issue, and it's brought us uh, to be able to see what's going on in the international environment, that the world remains uh, a complex place, and it's not getting any easier. It's actually getting, uh, there, there are threats that, that remain uh, across the board. Uh, we see that uh, the 2018 national defense strategy was pretty prescient in the way things were gonna be moving forward, and I think that's reflected in both bills. I think that also bodes well for, for conference when we come in. There are, uh, there are obviously some issues to hammer out between the two houses, uh, but I don't see uh, some of the same contentious issues that, that, that have plagued the past. I think both chairs were uh, very um, incentivized uh, or prioritized having a, a simpler bill that could pass both houses and get across, and get, a, get uh, to the finish line with a, uh, uh, was signed into law and implemented. So I think we'll see that. I don't know that we'll see that by the 1st of October. That's of course our hope, but I do think we'll see it uh, not long after that, uh, which will be good for everybody. And again, the important piece of this is that it sets policy and that we can start going after those policies sooner rather than later. Uh, what, one of the things that Alan, you and I have talked about, and Wes and I have talked about it too over the last number of years, when we've discussed NDAA is the whatever the acquisition reform efforts are that are included. Alan, there's not much in there this year about acquisition reform. You think that's a good thing or is that a bad thing for the, the vendors that are working with the Defense Department? Well, it's a, always a mixture. Uh, we'd like to see the provisions that we support included and the provisions we hate excluded. And I think this year there's uh, not a bad mix of that. The number of provisions that the Professional Services Council has been advocating. There's a number of provisions to strengthen the uh, supply chain and enhance the role of the defense industrial base. Those are good provisions. And to Wes's point, there are not that many provisions that are so-called killer provisions. Uh, although there are a few that uh, we're gonna have to do some work on to make sure it doesn't re get retained uh, in the final conference version. I come back to one other point on COVID to your question, uh, because I think it's important. Most of the bill is about the mission of the Department of Defense. And to its credit, most of the work that the department has done has not been affected significantly by the COVID um, uh, pandemic. Uh, work goes on, contracts unrelated to COVID have been awarded, performance is taking place across the department. Uh, even as uh, federal employees and uh, in installations are having to address that situation. So I, I think kudos to the Department of Defense and its senior leadership for keeping their focus on the mission of the Department of Defense and the role of contractors in support of that. Alan, Alan Schrock and Wes Hallman, thanks both very much for coming on. It's great to have you here. Always Thank a pleasure, you. Francis. Up next, what's next for the NDAA? Straight ahead on Government Matters, our Federal Beat Roundtable tells you what could stop all this momentum in its tracks. Welcome back to Top Line Authorizations for Congress's NDAA bills aren't the only big differences between the House and Senate versions. The House's top line is $731.6 billion in authorizations. The Senate version of the bill authorizes $741 billion. Lauren Williams is staff writer at FCW. Scott Mossionis, defense reporter at Federal News Network. Folks, thanks for coming on the program. Lauren, start with you. What do you think the biggest differences are 
between what the House and Senate will have to conference? I think some of the biggest differences are going to come uh, with provisions that require slightly different approaches. I'm thinking more so about the chief management officer position. The House is proposing to eliminate the position where the Senate is looking at revamping it a little bit, maybe getting rid of the, the CMO title, but just kind of implementing a different steps there. And so I'm looking uh, to see how the two houses will resolve differences in bills like that. Scott, what do you see as the big differences between House and Senate where the points of negotiation might be? Well, one of the big differences really is going to be how they're going to handle these bases with former Confederate uh, officials in them. Um, it's one of the things that the House is really adamant on getting rid of and even pulling back funding if some of the Defense Department doesn't deal with uh, the, the issue. Uh, the Senate, obviously, more conservative, having the Republicans in charge and uh, something they're going to have to figure out how exactly they're going to go, go about doing it. I'm surprised at the, the conversation we haven't heard this year about acquisition reform. Lauren, did you see anything in these bills acquisition-wise that might make a difference to the way the Pentagon does business? Nothing that, that I'm seeing right now. I've really been focusing on the, the cyber provisions. Um, I'm focused on, similar to the, the base renaming, the, the diversity efforts that are going on that'll definitely have some impact with personnel. Acquisition definitely seemed to take uh, a back seat, I think, uh, to this year compared to previous years where there's social justice reform that's a little bit more on the floor. Scott, is there anything that's not here in either of these bills this year that strikes you as unusual things that you've seen in the past that you don't see in 2021? Well, I think, as Lauren pointed out, the acquisition reform is something that uh, we usually expect from these bills, but we haven't really seen that much in there. Uh, partly is because the military services have said, whoa, we have way too much to work on and we need to, to slow down and actually uh, promulgate and make sure these things are implemented properly. One of the things with acquisition that was really interesting, though, is in the House version of the bill, the uh, other transaction authorities, which is a quicker way to kind of get on contract, they changed the name of or the definition for these non-traditional companies to be a little more strict. So it may be a little bit harder for companies to get onto those OTAs, but also gives a little more oversight for Congress and for the Defense Department. One of the discussions that happens every year when the NDA happens is the idea of putting things in there that don't necessarily have anything to do with defense. There were some amendments proposed about CISA and some other issues. Lauren, what's in these bills that maybe doesn't deal directly with defense that might wind up becoming law anyway as a result? I mean, I, I, this is a debatable point, but I think the, the TikTok ban um, is, is one of them. That was a late ad on the House side, and there's definitely some national security concerns that are uh, around that. But I think that that was one of those that was one of those late ad amendments that really, really doesn't really pertain to DOD per se um, that was able to get in. Scott, did you see uh, items here that? struck you as unusual to be in an NDAA? Or I guess at this point in time, it's fair game. Just about anything could be there, right? 
Yeah, well, especially on the Senate side, because their amendments don't necessarily have to be germane. Senator Angus King from uh, from Maine, he said he thinks that uh, CISA needs a little more authority, and he's asked them to look at how its missions can be bettered by additional budget resources uh, and how it can really support the, the risk management mission that it has. So um, within the NDAA uh, for the Senate side, he has added this amendment that will ask them to look more into how they can do better with more money. So it's a real chance for them to get more money in a bill that doesn't really uh, deal with them as much as it usually does. Lauren, is there something that would strike you as unusual if it happens or doesn't happen as the House and Senate conference their versions of these bills in the next couple of months? You know, I think what would strike me as unusual is if the if the houses in conference were to give in to the White House pressure to back off of some of the more the social justice reforms of talking about the renaming of the bases. I'm talking about um, the inclusion of chief diversity officers for each of the services that was proposed by the House. If there's any backing off there to kind of water it down to maybe just reporting requirements, that's something I would be surprised at because there definitely seems to be a public push and fervor there for that. Lauren Williams, Scott Mascioni, thanks both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every newscast by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 22828. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.